The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, it is my honor and pleasure to welcome Mr. J.D. Hansen. He is the U.S. co-chair for the Nanotechnology Working Group at the Transatlantic Consumers Dialogue. He is policy director at the International Center for Technology Assessment and senior policy analyst at the Center for Food Safety, where he specializes in the analysis of new and emerging technologies, especially synthetic biology, nanotechnology, and biotechnologies. Mr. Hansen has worked on the ethical and legal aspects of biotechnologies since 1986 and on those aspects of nanotechnologies since 2004, Welcome, Mr. Hansen. Nice to be with you. Well, I was looking at your bio online. Of course, I have to do my own investigative work on all my guests, and I noticed that you had spent a long career with the United Methodist Church, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your career with the church and how you transitioned to the Center for Food Safety. Well, I was hired by the church to set up their first program to, well, they call it, care for God's creation, but they liked that I had a background both in theology and in environmental policy, and so I did that work for 20 years until I got convinced by our executive director here, Andrew Kimbrell, to come work for him. I see. Well, the Center for Food Safety has a terrific reputation for having wonderful resources for consumers, and I want everyone to know about the Center for Food Safety at centerforfoodsafety.org. And you can learn not only about nanotechnology, which is what we're going to be talking about today, but many aspects of food safety as it applies to technology, including biotechnology, GMOs, labeling of these foods, and so forth. So let's get started, though, with our discussion on nanotechnology, because I think it's an area we did one interview earlier and spoke about how nanotechnology particles might impact soil and agriculture. But after doing that interview, I realized I really needed a part two where we could talk about nanotechnology and food specifically. So let's get started just with a basic understanding or review of what nanotechnology is. Well, nanotechnology at its simplest is chemicals and other things in the environment made really small. You know, if you were to think of your of your hair in nanometers, one strand of hair is about 50,000 nanometers wide. Yeah. Or put another way, it would be, you know, a nanometer is, you know, compared to the earth about the size of an apple if the if the earth is compared to the sun. So it, you know, nano, you know, nanomaterials are really, really small. Why are companies excited about them? Because when chemicals get that small, they change properties. Where, uh, for example, something like aluminum, we think of it as aluminum foil or or a uh, strong metal. 
when it gets down to the nano scale, it becomes an explosive. Oh, wow. Uh, the people in the industry will say, well, people have been using nanochemicals for a very long time. The Roman glass has nanochemicals in it, and, that, and that's true. The Romans accidentally figured out that uh, they could manipulate gold and other metals to make different colors. What we're doing now, though, is deliberate and being used because of, of really uh, exciting properties, but sometimes scary, because these nanochemicals are so small, they actually get into the cell, get into the nucleus of the cell, and they can change it in some not very good ways. So was nanotechnology and the application of nanoparticles in food, cosmetics, food packaging, etc., were those applications first tested for safety? No. The uh, Food and Drug Administration, until, until we, we at the Center for Food Safety sued them, used a process called generally regarded as safe. Mm -hmm. Here are chemicals that really have never existed before, but the FDA said, oh, yeah, the bulk form has been around forever, so it must be safe. And that ignores entirely why a company would want to use the nanoscale of something. Mm -hmm. So right now, the... You know, we would like the Food and Drug Administration to say, no, we won't ever let you use generally regarded as safe. You've got to use either food additives or food contact uh, regulations to get your approvals. They're not saying it that, uh, that cleanly. They're not issuing nano-specific regulations that would make companies give them data that way. So in terms of food safety, we've got the FDA, and we've got USDA, and we've got EPA. Are those three organizations, are they looking at the safety of nanoparticles in our environment, or does one agency have greater power than another? Well, for the most part in food, it's the Food and Drug Administration. About 80% of our food stuff goes through there. Okay. However, with nanochemicals, a number of them are actually used as nanopesticides. Nanosilver is being embedded into all different kinds of plastics to be used as food containers. And they have to be, well, they're supposed to be approved as new pesticides by the EPA, and we have a legal petition at the EPA about that. The EPA, to its credit, has actually fined and forced the removal of one food product, a uh, company that makes containers that they've advertised, will keep your strawberries fresh and do all kinds of other things, and EPA shut them down, not because they had nanosilver in the containers, but because they were making health claims that they had not submitted to either the FDA or the or the EPA about their product. Yeah, I read about that case, and I thought it was so interesting that it was 
Pathways Go Green Premium Storage Containers, which you know, there's an example of using greenwash to sell a product that contains these compounds that are not tested for safety. I wouldn't put them in the green category or environmentally friendly because we really don't know how they behave in the environment. And I did think it was interesting that it wasn't because of any health risk that they were being withdrawn, but it was because of the claims. And I thought, wow, we have a lot to learn. So as a consumer in the marketplace, how do I identify products that contain nanoparticles? Well, for the most part, you can't. Because uh, maybe, you know, the good news and bad news is about six years ago, a lot of the companies were advertising that they had nano in their products. But when we and other groups started looking at them, they didn't so much change their products as quit claiming they had nano in them. Mm-hmm. And so we've identified, uh, though at Center for Food Safety, about uh, 400 food products that have either been tested and found to contain nano or come from companies that claim they they have nano in them. So in terms of the everyday consumer looking for a product on the shelf, if they call the consumer number, will the company tell them that they contain nanoparticles? Probably not. Mm Mm-hmm. They might say it contains micronized silver or micronized nanotitanium dioxide because those larger forms have been approved for a while. Now, that's the difference between if you had a block of one micron by one micron, it could contain one billion nanoparticles within that block. So there's a big difference in size, and they probably won't tell you. Mm -hmm. So I saw some of the items that consumers might be interested in knowing. So, for example, cutting boards, I'm assuming it's plastic cutting boards primarily, plastic sandwich bags, food additives, preservatives, antimicrobials, and coloring agents. Would those be the most common food ingredients as clues on an ingredient label? Probably the, the ones that are the most commonly labeled are those that contain nanosilver. Okay. And, you know, nanosilver uh, is a very powerful uh, antibiotic. Hmm. The FDA has approved that for medical devices for diabetics sheets for people that are uh, bedridden, you know, it hasn't approved it for sheets for all of us or or cutting boards for all of us, but it has approved uh, nanosilver for the linings of diabetic shoes or for, uh, for hoses in hospitals uh, where there's problems with uh, resistant strains of staff. Mm-hmm. It's good for that. Would those particles, though, migrate into the body if we're using medical tubing? We don't have real good data on that. Even the FDA doesn't have real good data on that. The presumption is, no, they don't. 
for those kind of uses where unfortunately uh, uh, those products are, are generally just used once, unlike your cutting board that's used over and over again. Mm-hmm. Now, the companies that are using these nanoparticles, the FDA has come up with a statement. They are making recommendations, but they are not having any mandatory, in fact, they don't have teeth, really, to mandate their recommendations. So it seems to me that their recommendations really will fall on deaf ears. What is the purpose of the recommendations? Well, I think, the per, you know, the, the real purpose of their recommendations is so uh, that they can, well, I'll try to put it in the most positive way, so that they can encourage the companies to do the right thing and to report to them what they're doing. It, you know, is not a, um, you know, guidances aren't something that are regulations. Regulations you can be fined for, you can be arrested for violating. A guidance is uh, just advice to a company that this is how the FDA is going to be looking at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me take one short break and remind our listeners sure. that they are listening to Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Mr. J.D. Hansen. He is Senior Policy Analyst at the Center for Food Safety, and he has been analyzing the risks, the unintended consequences, and even the benefits of synthetic biology, nanotechnology, and biotechnologies. And he has been looking specifically at nanotechnologies since 2004. When did nanoparticles enter the food system, would you say? Well, that's not 100% clear, but Mm. um, what we're seeing is over the last uh, 15 years, more and more use of nanomaterials. A little over uh, 10 years ago, the federal government started what was called the National Nanotechnology Initiative to really promote the um, use of nanotechnology. Uh, and so there's been a lot of stuff in the last in the last 10 years, especially. Mm-hmm. Now, I did read that the USDA is considering a ban on nanotechnology in organic foods. Where are we on that? Well, we and a number of other groups uh, have uh, testified to the National Organic Standards Board and recommended, uh, well, the National Organic Standards Board recommended that the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which runs the National Organic Program, adopt uh, a policy that um, nanoparticles smaller than 300 nanometers should not be in organic food. And the reason that uh, 300 nanometers is used is anything smaller than about 250 nanometers can get into the body. And so that number is actually from research uh, on the effect of nanoparticles on reproductive systems in animals. Mm-hmm. So a mother, actually the research was in rats, a mother rat, uh, if she eats nanoparticles smaller than 240 nanometers, they can go across her 
uh, as a as a precautionary measure, assuming that uh, humans are are pretty similar. The uh, National Organic Standards Board said nothing smaller than 300. Hmm. Well, it was interesting. I was reading. You have a wonderful blog, and you speak about the nano in our food, and. You have something here that talks about Chinese researchers claim that nanoparticles used in printing products have already killed workers in China when they were inhaled by the workers. And I'm wondering if the workers who are you know, handling these, the food products and the dietary supplements and the packaging materials, if we've seen any illness among those workers who are handling the nanoparticles. Well... We've had uh, just recently in the United States the first well-documented case of a worker getting injured from a nanoparticle, and that was nano-nickel. And this was a professional chemist who should have known how to protect herself, except the company didn't tell her she was working with nanoscale nickel. And... She would have known that you have to take a whole different precautions when you're working with something in the nanoscale to, because your mask that you might use to protect yourself won't work. So you have to be really careful to exclude exposure rather than wait until the worker, you know, has it right in their face. Mm-hmm. And the, there are lots of workers that are likely to um, uh, be exposed to nanochemicals, including those in the food industry that are spraying nanochemicals into plastic or onto plastic or spraying them onto foods themselves. So and so far we don't have good good standards that uh, require that workers know what they're working with and put in place the proper protections to protect them. As a consumer, I'm really alarmed by this, Uh, not only the worker safety component, but the fact that I want to have some control over the foods and beverages and products that I use in my home and those that I take into my body. And I'm wondering, you know, I'm looking at this one blog post that you wrote that you explain companies are using nanotechnologies as food additives, as flavor slash taste modifiers for preservation through nano antimicrobials, which you mentioned, for sprays, for encapsulating dietary supplement ingredients, and many other applications. And you talk about nanoclays and the, how those are being used as dispersants and anti-caking agents, as well as plastic bottle linings to prevent CO2 from escaping from beer and other fizzy drinks. I don't know what to do as a consumer in the marketplace. Can you help me? Well, I think one of the best things that a consumer can do is, you know, as in, as in most parts of the food system, Try to go as fresh as you can and as local as you can. Even some of the imported foods, they're using nano antimicrobials mixed with waxes to spray on fruits so they'll last longer while they're being shipped to you. So the the best thing you can do is buy as much as you can 
unprocessed as much as you can local. And, you know, don't store it in, in a lot of these plastic containers. Yeah. Especially the ones that say they're really good. Right. Because they probably have nano in them. Yeah, it would seem to me that if we look for the glass storage containers or glass containers, those would be not likely to contain any kind of nanoparticle infusion. Am I correct? Yeah, I would say for the most part. Though it's still possible with some of the colorants that they might have nanocolorants in them. But... um, that's an area that the FDA actually does regulate better than they do food contact substances. The coloring in glass? Yeah. Okay. So as a consumer, and we want to be good food citizens, would contacting the FDA be of any value? I mean, I think that what I love about your organization is it does provide a source for those of like mind to get together and take action together so that more voices have more strength. But do you have any kind of guidelines right now in terms of action steps to get these products out of our food system? Well, one of the things that we that we are doing, um, as, as you probably know, we have brought a lawsuit against the FDA to get them to even respond to our concerns. And they moved a little bit in the right direction. Later this summer, actually in early in early September, the FDA is accepting comments on nano in animal feed additives. And so we will be writing comments on that. And if you if you sign up at Center for Food Safety for our action alerts, we'll send you an action alert telling you when that's timely. So there is a, a comment period for nanoparticles in animal feed contents, right. but no comment period for nanoparticles in human food contents. Yeah, well, they did already have a comment period on that, and they just issued their response to all of our comments on that. The good news is that the FDA stops just short of writing uh, new regulations requiring companies to not use this process called generally agreed as safe for nano uh, nanochemicals. But they make pretty clear that they are going to look more and more carefully at nanomaterials. And so uh, the, the companies are are somewhat worn, but it doesn't, you know, it's um, not likely that they're going to stop doing it. You know, we also will be uh, pushing more of the companies to stop what they're doing, and we'll have that on our website as well at centerforfoodsafety.org. Well, I think the more we can inform consumers and have a an overall consumer outrage over this. You know, Sandra Steingraber, who's a wonderful ecologist and writer, and she calls this chemical trespass, where you have these compounds or particles entering the body without our permission. And it seems to me that the food supply, food and water both, are the most sacred things on earth that we take into our body. 
and that to have some control over the, you know, here in the United States, to have some control or some freedom over what we do put into our body seems like that would happen. And so I'm concerned. And I, I wanted to ask you a question. In 2006, I, I found that the Center for Food Safety's sister organization, the International Center for Technology Assessment, petitioned the FDA for mandatory regulations of nanotech in food and later sued the agency over its failure to respond. What happened with that lawsuit? Well, what happened with that lawsuit is they did end up issuing guidance documents, which are the step short of regulations, and you know we will be pushing them more to actually uh, issue regulations. But their response to us was, yes, we're going to be issuing the guidance document, and yes, we are going to limit the use of generally regarded as safe for nano. Okay. So if they're limiting generally regarded as safe, does that imply that a company that wants to add these particles to their food or food products, that they would have to prove them safe before putting them onto the market? No. <laughs> Unfortunately, the way the way our system works is that you don't so much have to prove that they are are safe but that there's a reasonable assurance that you've done as much as you can to make them safe. Hmm. That's a little different. Yes, it is. Uh, Mr. Hansen, we only have a couple of minutes, and I wonder if you would like to bring forth some information about this technology and your work at the Center for Food Safety that I may have neglected to ask. Well, yeah, I, I'd say that uh, the... Uh, one of the one of the big issues is right now we're seeing Europe uh, say that you've got at least label when you've got uh, nanochemicals in food, label when you've got uh, nanochemicals in uh, cosmetics. But uh, there's a trade agreement that's being negotiated between the U.S. and the EU, and interestingly. One of the issues that the U.S. Trade Representative's office is beating up Europe over is this labeling of nanochemicals uh, in food. And the guy that they've got in charge over at the U.S. Uh, Trade Representative's office, uh, Matthew Jaffe, his whole career before he went to the Trade Representative's office was beating up the government for trying to regulate chemicals. So... Now he's uh, trying to make sure that Europe can't either. Hmm. So we are uh, we are saying that uh, food needs to be taken out of the trade agreement altogether because they're trying to undercut the first efforts to regulate nanotechnology in food. They're trying to undercut GMO regulations. They're trying to get accomplished in in a secret trade deal what they can't get accomplished working in the open. Well, I want to thank you very much for joining me. I want to refer all of our listeners to the centerforfoodsafety.org. It is the best place to keep your finger on the pulse on this issue and so much more. 
We have been speaking with Mr. J.D. Hansen. He is the Senior Policy Analyst at the Center Food Safety. And in closing, I want to thank Mr. Hansen for being my guest. I want to thank our listeners, and I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you so much, Mr. Hansen, for shedding light on this topic. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me.